Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers. And for anyone else who happens to love the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. We're both preachers who love the Hebrew Bible, and we're PhD students at Emory University in the Hebrew Bible program, which means that we also love pain and suffering. Uh, Tim, that that, uh, might not be the best way to promote our program here at Emory. Sorry about that. I mean, we love insomnia and heartbreak. Okay, dear listeners, Tim is in the middle of finals right now, so maybe let's just move on. Sounds good to me. Now, if you've been listening to our weekly sort of Nescafe mini-episodes, you'll be happy to hear that this week we have a full pot of organic, fair trade, artisanal coffee kind of episode, and we've invited an expert exegete to join us for our deep dive into Psalm 97. Yes, we are so pleased to have Dr. Marx V. Brettler with us today. Dr. Brettler is Professor Emeritus from Brandeis University and a visiting scholar at Hebrew University. His academic areas of expertise include the Psalms, biblical history, biblical metaphor, Jewish liturgy, biblical interpretation, sort of you name it, he's done it. Dr. Brettler is also known as an effective bridge builder between the world of Jewish faith and the world of critical biblical scholarship. He's a co-founder of the website thetorah.com, which seeks to integrate traditional Jewish and contextual academic perspectives on the Bible. And I especially enjoyed his article there called Basing Judaism on the Truth, Does the Torah Lie? He's currently writing a commentary on Book 4 of the Psalms, which Tim and I cannot wait to get our hands on. If you'd like to know more about his work, check out the Jewish Study Bible and Jewish Annotated New Testament. Mark Brettler, welcome to First Reading. Thank you very much. Quite a welcome. I've never been called artisanal coffee before. <laughs> well, we're, we were going for the highest compliment we could think of as graduate students. So, Thank you. Yeah. Now, first and foremost, most importantly, you've recently spent time in Israel, and I'm dying to know, how good did the falafel taste while you were there? The falafel is excellent, the shawarma is excellent, and all the food is excellent. Uh, uh. I urge Americans to travel there and to see what fresh fruit and vegetables really taste like. You know, I really feel like we are missing out in the United States by not having a robust falafel and shawarma tradition, personally. Well, given the job market, you might want to think about that as a backup. (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you for the tip. (laughs) Mark, uh, we're both familiar and use thetorah.com. But as we were getting ready for this, I noticed I don't know much about Project Tabs, the Torah and Biblical Studies more broadly. Do you want to say a little about that for our listeners? Uh, Sure. That's the general project which engendered thetorah.com. And that started... A little more than five years ago, when I got an email out of the blue from someone who was Jewish and involved in the Jewish educational world, who suddenly found himself interested in uh, critical biblical perspectives and was looking for good websites that would explore that issue, and he did not find any. So he, Rabbi David Steinberg, and I got together, we brainstormed, and that eventually became the website, thetorah.com. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's dive into the text from here. Uh, Mark, would you, would you read Psalm 97 for us? Sure, and I'm going to do it a little differently than many of your previous podcasts. I'm going to read the Hebrew verse first. And then I'll read the English verse as reflected in the Jewish publication, Society Translation. Sounds great. 
Adonai Malach Tagel Haaretz Yismichu Iyim Rabim The Lord is King, let the earth exalt, the many islands rejoice. Anan Varafel Sevivav Tzedek Umishpat Mechon Kiso Dense clouds are around him, righteousness and justice are the base of his throne. Ish Lefanav Telech Utlahet Saviv Tsarav. Fire is his vanguard, burning his foes on every side. Verse 4. He iru virakav tevel, raata vatachel haaretz. His lightnings light up the world. The earth is convulsed at the sight. Harim kadonag namasu milifne adonai, milifne adon kol haaretz. Mountains melt like wax at the Lord's presence, at the presence of the Lord of all the earth. Higidu hashamayim tzidko, virau chol ha'amim kivodo. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all peoples his glory. Verse 7. Yevoshu kol ode fesel hamitalilim ba'ililim hishtachavu lo kol Elohim. All who worship images, who vaunt their idols, are dismayed. All divine beings bow down to him. Shama'a vatismach tzion vatagilna b'not Yehuda leman mishpatecha Adonai. Zion, hearing it, rejoices. The towns of Judah exult because of your judgments, O Lord. Ki ata Adonai elyon al kol haaretz, me'od na'aleta al kol Elohim. For you, Lord, are supreme over all the earth. You are exalted high above all divine beings. Verse 10. Oave Adonai Sinura, Shomer Nafshot Chasidav, Miyad Rishayim Yatsilem. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He guards the lives of his loyal ones, saving them from the hand of the wicked. Or Zarua Latzadik, Uli Shredev Simcha. Light is sown for the righteous, radiance for the upright. Verse 12, the conclusion. Simchud tzadikim badonai v'hodu l'zecher show. O you righteous, rejoice in the Lord and acclaim his holy name. Happily. <laughs> that was wonderful to hear. Uh, before we jump into the first verse, can we say anything about the psalm sort of generally, like uh, about its form or its structure that helps us understand what kind of psalm it is? Sure. Let me actually first start by talking about the psalms that are around the psalm. These days, it's very fashionable to talk about collections in the book of psalms within the Psalter. Mm-hmm. And very often, these seem to be arbitrary. But in this case, clearly, Psalm 97 needs to be considered within the psalms that are around it, mm-hmm. all of which, in one sense or another, 
deal with God as king. This starts in Psalm 93 and concludes either with Psalm 99 and Psalm 100. So this is all a larger collection that deals with either God as king or God becoming king. There's a big debate about the interpretation of the first two Hebrew words of the psalm. All of them deal with God's power and all of them, or just about all of them, connect God's power with God's justice, which is a significant element of Psalm 97 as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. okay, so that's the broader context of the psalm. If you want to talk about the psalm itself and its structure, psalms often do not have a super clear structure that is highly symmetrical. But it is likely that this 12-verse psalm should be divided into three sections, where the first one is six verses, and then the following two sections are three verses each. So you have a six plus three plus three. The first six verses describe the divine theophany, the appearance of God. The next three verses, from verses 7 to 9, deal with other gods and their worshipers. And if the first six verses emphasize seeing, verses 7 to 9 emphasize hearing, especially at the beginning of verse 8. And then there is a transition in the last three verses where Israel is addressed directly or the lovers of God within Israel are addressed directly, and certain terms dealing with righteous people occur in each of those verses. I would also say, and I hope that some of you listening there heard this as I was reciting the psalm, different parts of the psalm have different lengths. Mm -hmm. So most biblical verses can be divided into two parts, what we call bicola. So for example, verse one, and just listen, it doesn't matter that you don't understand the words. Adonai malach tagil haaretz, yismichu iim rabim. But if you listen to the Second section of the psalm, verses seven through eight, those are all tricola. Each verse has three sections. So just so you could listen to verse eight, Shama'a vatismach tzion, vatagilna b'not Yehuda, l'man mishpatecha Adonai. So it is not only topic which divides the psalm into sections, but it is the poetic structure which does so as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so helpful about the structure of the psalm. I noticed as I was looking at the Hebrew as you were reading it in verse 7, which begins that second section, even the words themselves lengthen. You have very long words with lots of um, uh, different uh, prefixes or suffixes. It's, it's a shift in the poetry itself. Yeah, there is a shift there. I think that is the longest verse in terms of if you counted syllables or how long it would take to recite it. And that will sometimes happen at the juncture between two sections, because having a super long verse there is a way of saying we've started a new section because it is so much longer than the previous verse six. I also noticed in in the way that you divided the the psalm helps to bring this out as well, that it 
begins with uh, rejoicing, exulting, and it also ends with similar joy and exultation. But the middle section there, starting in verse 7, switches from joy to shame or being ashamed. So the even the, the emotional experience of the psalm shifts at that point. Uh, that's a really nice observation. And this psalm, I think, has as its one of its main motifs joy, which is very important to remember, because many people think that joy is not a significant part of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, but indeed it is. So the root samach for joy is repeated, if I counted properly, uh, four times within the psalm. You're right, it begins the psalm and it concludes the psalm. That is not an unusual pattern where you have a type of bookends or what's frequently called by biblical scholars an inclusio, where a term or a phrase is used at the beginning and the end to frame a particular literary work. Uh, and of course, your observation that the difference between joy and shame is a very important one because we see sense the significance of joy if you then mention its antithesis, the shame of the others. And by the way, similarly, in terms of antitheses in the psalm, the word land, eretz or haaretz, appears, I believe, also four times in the psalm. And there too, that gets highlighted by a mention of heavens that you have once within the psalm. So again, it is opposites which highlight what, what the main themes of the psalm are. Now, the second section, well, the first section, really, the, the verses one to six, um, that has a lot to do with, I mean, it's, it's just got a ton of imagery for God in it. Um, storms and clouds and mountains melting like wax. Uh, could you sort of flesh some of those out for us? Sure. And I'll also mention that the two images which you noted are more connected than they might seem. So let me start with the image of verse 5 of mountains that are melting like wax. I'll, I'll just say that for us, that is a very, very striking image. Uh, I would note that Micah chapter 1 verse 4 uses that same image. So I really wonder if that was a relatively common image that existed within ancient Israel. And it's just because we don't live there right. that it strikes us as such a surprising image. Or another possibility is you know, the ancients viewed plagiarism very, very differently than we did. <laughs> and, you know, it is quite possible that our psalmist is copying this image from the first chapter of the book of Micah. But the main point that I'd like to make is that the mountains melting like wax in verse 5 is closely connected to the image of God as a storm god in verses three and four. And just to remind you, that image opens with fire is his vanguard. And of course, once you mention fire, 
which the following verse clarifies, really means his lightnings. Mm -hmm. And that's a strange translation in the JPS. I don't know if you heard the S Mm -hmm. at the end of lightnings, Mm -hmm. but that is trying to reflect the fact that the Hebrew virakav is in the plural. So you have fire and lightnings. And of course, if there's wax nearby, it's going to melt. So <laughs> the image of verses three and four or verses two, three, and four leads right into the image of verse five. And the image of verses two and four, you know, which is a very, very striking image, is also a rather standard biblical image. Uh, Before I use the term theophany, which is based on the the Greek words, the appearance of God. And in a wide variety of biblical texts, in Psalms and elsewhere, where God appears, God appears as a storm god. And this explains the dense clouds that surround God, the lightning that accompanies God. Of course, what's a little unusual about the psalm, and this typifies all of the psalms in this collection, is if you read verses 2, 3, and 4 together, almost all of them deal with the power of God. And You could imagine, and this might really be the case, that these are various features which the God of Israel absorbed from the ancient Canaanite god Baal, who is also often depicted as a storm god. But if you read verses 2, 3, and 4, you'll see that one of these things is not like the other. And the one that is not like the other is the second part of verse 2. Righteousness and justice are the base of his throne. This is not pure power. This is not arbitrary power. But this is power which is fundamentally connected to the vision that the God of Israel is a righteous and just God who seeks righteousness and justice from others, which will, of course, tie to the last three verses of the psalm. Right. It connects the raw power of God to a moral context. Exactly. Power with a purpose. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, something else that strikes me in that section is the, the universal quality of that power, we have the, the repetition of the word kol, really over and over there. We've got God's power over kol ha'aretz, uh, all the peoples, uh, kol ha'amim. And later on in the next section, that, that pattern continues, that the, the reign of this God is extending over the whole earth. Yeah, that's a very nice observation. Uh, I would need to check different translations to see if in all cases— they translate the Hebrew word call as all, 
which is what it means. And again, this often becomes an issue of English translations, where English does not tolerate repetition as well as Hebrew does. That's right. So sometimes these central terms, such as call, meaning all, which are repeated strategically within the Hebrew, that is often not picked up within the English. And you're right that the term call really does reflect a type of universalism. And even though the last three verses of the psalm seem to turn inward to Israel, the initial nine verses of the psalm, and note especially the way in which the psalm begins, let the earth exalt the many islands or the many coastlands rejoice or be glad. This is going well outside of Israel. And this, by the way, typifies almost all of Psalms 93 to 99. Again, many people think that the Hebrew Bible only has an internal Israelite perspective and never has a universal perspective. Almost all of the Psalms in that collection are very universal in their purview. So universal, and this is a strange thing that most people don't imagine or don't realize when they hear these Psalms. These Psalms are imagining that foreigners are listening in mm. as the Psalm is being recited. Mm -hmm. And they too, the foreigners, the non-Israelites, the entire world, sometimes meaning the entire the inhabitants of the entire world and sometimes even meaning the natural world itself the entire world is expected to praise god for god's power and god's justice that's true if we move into verses 7 through 9 there's also a critique there of the outsiders of of those who are worshipers of images and idols uh, yes, this is a critique. It's not among the strongest critiques no. that <laughs> you true. have of such people. It is found predominantly in verse 7, which again, to refresh your memories, all who worship images who vaunt their idols are dismayed. You have images like this especially in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, and in a whole bunch of ways, the psalm is connected to those chapters in Isaiah, which scholars often call Deutero-Isaiah. Those chapters come from the Babylonian exile from in between the years 586 and 538 BCE. It is quite possible that this psalm as well was written under the influence of those chapters in Isaiah, and that's why it shares that image. And what is sometimes called radical monotheism is thought to develop in that particular period. But again, I would point out, and again, once you start looking at the psalm, this is really quite surprising to many people. The psalm itself in this form is not radically monotheistic right. because right. it does not say <laughs> in the end of verse 7 that the divine, no divine beings exist outside of God. 
it does not say like a section of Deuteronomy says, you have been shown that the Lord is God. There is none yeah. other. Right. It is not like the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel uh, in First Kings chapter 18, where there's just a broad recognition of Adonai Huha Elohim, Adonai Huha Elohim. The Lord is God, the Lord is God. But instead here, you have, quote, all divine beings bow down to him. So there's a recognition that other divine beings, aside from God, exist, but they are clearly subservient to God. So, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, you've worked with religious communities. And um, how do you help people kind of conceptualize this uh later monotheism, which we've inherited, which we assume to be inherent all over the Bible, uh, with these passages, which are kind of more comfortable with something a little different than radical monotheism? Well, the Bible is a compilation, and the Bible has a broad number of views concerning almost every issue. (laughs) And I think that it's really important that as we read the Bible and try to understand it, We understand it on its own terms, and we do not make it fit into the straitjacket of what our religion or what our religious presuppositions are. I mean, I also use when explaining this uh, a term that Benjamin Summer has coined, or two terms, of qualitative monotheism versus quantitative Mm, monotheism. And he has argued that very often the Bible does recognize that there are other divine beings. And you have this relatively often in the book of Psalms. If you take a look at the first two chapters of the book of Job, I think it's crystal clear there. And in that sense, the Bible quantitatively recognizes a number of different deities. But in terms of qualitative phenomena, the God of Israel is more powerful than any of them. You see that in the beginning of the book of Job, where the Satan or the adversary can't do anything without asking God first. You see it at the end of the psalm in verse 7, where all these other divine beings bow down to him. So if this helps, the Bible by and large believes in qualitative monotheism, if not necessarily in quantitative monotheism. And I would also ask the read the people who are listening to this podcasts, how do they understand angels? Yeah. Or in certain Catholic traditions, how do you understand mm. the role of Mary? Mm. So I think we have to be really careful about how we understand monotheism and about asserting that all of our even contemporary religious beliefs are absolutely monotheistic. I think that's a great point. Um, Like most 
answers to questions about the Bible. However, it opens up another thorny issue, which is for religious communities who are in um, pluralistic settings where you have, you know, a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple down the street. And you have this discussion in this psalm of Adonai exalted over above all other divine beings. Does that lead us into a little bit of a tricky area about how we relate to our neighbors who profess faith to a different divine being? Um, I don't find that to be tricky at all. If anything else, that should make us more tolerant Mm. of others who have different views of divinity and different views of divine beings. So I really hope very much that these psalms and other works in the Hebrew Bible open us up to understanding other religious views and other views concerning monotheism and polytheism. Because because going back a second ago, uh, you asked me about different views concerning monotheism within the Bible. Yeah, we have them within the Bible. We have them within what for some of us is our Bible, and that should make us be tolerant also of of a multiplicity of views that go beyond our scriptures and beyond our particular religious communities. Well said. Yeah, that's that's really helpful to hear. Let's ask um, a, a couple questions about the last couple verses of this psalm. I was I have I have a question about verse 12 the last verse but before we get there I was really intrigued just by the image in verse 11 of of light being sown for the righteous or zahua le tzadik and uh, trying to to sort of finesse that and figure out what's going on with an image like light being sown for the yeah. righteous Well you're not the first person who's trying to finesse <laughs> what that particular verse means so, as you noted, the first two words are or zarua, which translates uh, as a light is sown, or to continue with the next word, a light is sown for the righteous. Uh, many people find the relation between the first two words to be very, very jarring, because sowing is clearly from the agricultural world, and it is difficult to imagine how light can be sown. Uh So the first thing I would note is that there are other places where this root, zara, is used in non-agricultural senses. So for example, if you look at Proverbs 11.18, there you have, the wicked man earns illusory wages, but he who sows righteousness, and there the Hebrew is vizoreat tzedakah, has a true reward. And the same thing is found in Proverbs 22.8. So This, again, becomes an English issue. We do not use agricultural images in such contexts, such as sowing right. And again, this is sowing always with an O rather than with an E. Very important Uh, distinction. Yep. (laughs) And 
clearly in ancient Israel, they seem to have used this word more often in a figurative or a metaphorical sense. The other thing that I would note is that there is a likely pun here in the Hebrew, which none of the English translations that I know of uh, has has managed to capture. Closely related to that second word, zarua, is the Hebrew verb zarach, which Mm. means to shine. shine. And indeed, the Septuagint, the ancient Greek text of the Hebrew Bible, translates this particular verse using the word shine. So for an English translation of the Greek, light dawned for the righteous, which is certainly a less jarring image. But I don't think... (laughs) Somehow less fun though, right? I think that it's less fun. (laughs) I think given your question before about melting hills or Mm. melting mountains, that the psalmist enjoys using very vibrant images. So the way I explore such issues, if we're looking at a humdrum biblical passage, and it has one vibrant image in the middle, and by amending it, we can make it humdrum to fit the rest of the <laughs> song. I'll often amend the text or suggest amending it. But this is a very vibrant, powerful psalm. And I think that there's a play on words here. And I will accept what the Hebrew text says, that light is sown for the righteous. And we should be struck by this image. And what exactly does it mean? Well, this is, I deal with metaphors a whole lot. (laughs) Well, you know, when you plant something, does that mean that it doesn't always grow? Is this perhaps a hope that it will grow or that it will grow eventually? Or as some scholars have suggested, you know, maybe there's some sense of inevitability in this agricultural image that you plant something, if it's a good seed, you water it, you give it sunlight, and it may take a while, but it certainly will grow. And if that's the direction in which you take this particular metaphor, then it is expressing the inevitability of a good result for those who are righteous and upright. I like that. The other thing that is fun about allowing the agricultural image to to kind of hover for uh, a bit and not amending it and changing it to something that sounds a little more logical is uh, when you plant a seed, what comes out of the ground looks nothing like that seed right away. So what sort of fun kind of play <laughs> do you have if, if light is sown, what comes up out of the ground and, and how is it different from what we might be expecting? Yeah, that's very nice. And it certainly does not mean that the righteous glow or something like that (laughs) to take your point a little bit further. Right, right. The last last few words of this psalm uh, have a phrase that we actually encountered a, a few weeks ago when we were looking at Psalm 30. Uh, and it's Vehodu uh, lezecher kodsho. And it's translated usually and in the JPS uh, as acclaim his holy name. But zecher kodsho 
is kind of a, a, a different kind of uh, way of talking about uh, a name. And it has that, that root of memory, uh, of remember or memorialize. Do you have any thoughts on, on that word choice? Well, first of all, you've again noted another case of plagiarism. <laughs> Almost everybody agrees that Psalm 97 is later than Psalm 30. And you're 100% right that the last three words of each of those psalms is identical. The author of Psalm 97 was either copying from Psalm 30, or at this point, this was a common phrase, which the author of Psalm 97 used. Now, please note, I'm not urging you to plagiarize, I'm not <laughs> urging the listeners to plagiarize, I'm merely noting different style that existed in antiquity, mm. especially concerning traditional diction than one that exists now. Mm. So in Psalm 30, no, in Psalm 30, it's the middle of the psalm. Verse 5. Here think, yeah. it is the end of the psalm. Mm. Both of these are connected to what you have when God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, where there you have in Exodus 3.15, Zeshmi le'olam l'dor dor. This is my name forever, and this is my zecher from generation to generation. Hmm. And that is the same word, zecher, that is the next to last word in this verse, so what it literally means, and the word literally is a word I don't really <laughs> like, <laughs> and acclaim or acknowledge or give thanks to the memory of his holiness. Nice, yeah. But we know that in Hebrew, based on that, that verse from Exodus 3.15 and other places, that the word zecher, memory, is sometimes used in the sense of that through which you remember somebody. And how do you remember somebody? Well, the primary way of remembering somebody is through his name. So I actually have no issues with the JPS translation here. And actually, the New Revised Standard Version is the same. They both translate holy name. And they're just taking zecher as a synonym for the more common Hebrew word shem, which does indeed mean name. But again, Maybe it is connected a little bit to the psalm, because what the psalm is trying to do is to get everybody to remember and to recall and to acknowledge the greatness of this universal God. And thus, a synonym for the word name, which is connected to the word memory, is especially appropriate in this context. Yeah, and that 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 remembering that this psalm is trying to get people to do 
serves to, if I'm reading the end right, serves to influence the actions of the people today. You know, this is where we get the imperatives of hate evil, you know, uh, rejoice in the Lord, acclaim God's holy name. Um, so that that memory and that remembering is always in service of the present and present action. Yeah, you just made a really important point. And this, some scholars debate, will be very clear where I stand on this particular issue in a moment. <laughs> the big question is, does ancient Israel care about history or the past for its own sake? Mm. Some people think yes. And some people think that the Bible reflects what is called antiquarian interest by some. Uh, I respectfully disagree. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that the Bible ever really cares about memory for its own sake, but cares about memory that spurs on action. So you do very often in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, have the phrase, you must remember that you were a slave, or sometimes, in, uh, maybe I'll translate it in the plural as a collective, you were slaves in the land of Egypt. But that never appears independently, but always as a motivation for why you should do something, why you should, you know, given that we're talking together about a week and a half before Passover, it explains why you should commemorate Passover, or very frequently, it explains why you need to treat the downtrodden very well and show a special concern for them. And this psalm is the same. It's telling you about how you must understand and recognize, and at the very end of the psalm, remember God, but this has moral and ethical implications as well. Absolutely. And I think that's a great transition point as, as you kind of broaden this psalm from just the text itself to the community that it's addressing and out of which it produced. Um, can you say a little bit about the liturgical use of this psalm in Judaism? Sure. If you go to any synagogue on Friday evening, this psalm is one of seven psalms which is recited as part of the Kabbalat Shabbat, the welcoming of the Sabbath service, where Psalms 95 to 99 are recited, then Psalm 29, which also deals with the kingship of God, is recited, and then after that, the Psalm, which is explicitly connected to the Sabbath in the Bible, Psalm 92, which begins Mizmor Shir Yom HaShabbat, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day is recited. So in other words, Psalm 97 is one of the six psalms that represents the six days of creation, which is followed by Psalm 92, representing the Shabbat, the Sabbath, 
the seventh day of rest. And thus, within Judaism, the power of God, as reflected in this particular psalm, is understood as being the power of God that was seen through the creation of the world. And going back to an earlier point that I made, that because in verse 2 of this particular psalm, you have righteousness and justice are the base of his throne within a Jewish tradition that is understood to mean liturgically that righteousness and justice are the base of God's throne as creator. And thus, in some sense, this is connected to the first creation story in Genesis chapter 1 through the middle of Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where the world as created, each element of it is tov, is good, and the world as a whole is tov me'old, is very good. And the job of us as people is to inherit a world which, as created, was very good, and to do our best at making sure that it stays that way, rather than doing things which absolutely ruin it. Rachel, do you want to uh, offer a preaching angle on this text that you could imagine a, a Christian congregation using? Boy, yeah, I think I think there's a couple of them. I mean, I think everything that you just said, Mark, about God's power being connected to God's justice everywhere from the creation of the entire world to how we treat uh, those in our lives and in our broader communities who are poor and downtrodden. And just that theme, that reframe, that God's power is always in service of God's justice or that justice is always at the base of God's power if you're using the throne as a metaphor for God's power. I mean, I think that would be a really strong sermon, um, especially for where this falls in the Christian liturgical year. Um, another idea that I have um, is both connected to that idea of power, but also slightly pushes back against it um, because power and kingship as an image um, is something that in our modern setting is often connected to images of um, oppression, to images of uh, male leaders who dominate, and that can be really problematic in certain settings. Um, so if this image um, is difficult for your setting, um, I would say lifting up that connection to justice and righteousness as connected with God's power and maybe talking about empowerment could be a way to, to lean into that metaphor um, without, without maybe doing damage to, to what your setting is. Yeah, I think that those are great ways to get into a text like this. One that I would add would be thinking about the way that sometimes uh, when we look at the, the world, it's very clear or it seems to be clear that it is totally out of control. <laughs> but a, a, a psalm like this is a, a bears witness to a God who ha, has not fallen asleep at the wheel, but is very much in control of the world. And I really liked what our, the part of our discussion about light uh, being sown for the righteous in the sense that 
sometimes uh, appearances may be deceiving. And even though it seems like uh, the world is spinning out of control, it may be that light has been planted and just needs time to germinate and sprout and come up. So that there's so much in this psalm, so much great imagery that you could use in a sermon to talk about the way that, that God's power interacts with the world. And I, I would just second what you said, Rachel, about the, the way that, that this, this image of God as being large and in charge is, is based on, uh, it's that reign is supported by God's righteousness and God's justice. I think that's right at the heart of what's going on in this psalm, too. Yeah, if I can make a brief comment on what you've said. Please do. Uh, so t- I appreciate all of what you said, and I think that those would be great liturgical uses. I'll just say, Tim, I wish I could share your optimism, <laughs> and I hope that this song might be able to help us be more optimistic, if that optimism could be helpful. Uh, Rachel, in terms of your first comment about divine power and justice, something that connects both Judaism and Christianity is the notion of imitatio dei, that we need to imitate God. And indeed, if we take that seriously, and if God's power is fundamentally connected to justice, that becomes something that we need to remember. That becomes something that we really need to remind all of our elected officials about. And I'm very sympathetic to your point about the problem of uh, kingship Mm. and the problems that it creates for the contemporary reader. And I'll just say that if anybody wants to try translating the Hebrew word melech as president rather than king, (laughs) this whole psalm is going to fall apart very, very badly. Uh, But it is important to remember how fundamental kingship was as a central institution in antiquity Mm -hmm. and to remember that when God in the Bible is depicted as king, God is depicted as an ideal king. Mm -hmm. And that really stands behind the image of this psalm and the surrounding psalms as well. Yeah, I I remember when I um, first realized or was told that um, Psalm 23 is actually an image of kingship uh, for ancient Israel and the ancient Near East, um, that kings were often connected to shepherds who guided, who tended, who cared for. Uh, that that really opened up that king metaphor for me in, in a new way. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we're coming to the end of our time here. That's probably a good place for us to, to wrap up. Mark Brettler, it has truly been a pleasure to talk with you. And and thanks for being with us. Oh, you show off. <laughs> so, thank you to both of you. You asked really great questions, and it was really a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you. That was just an honor and just really fun to talk with you. Thank you. Remember, if you're interested in more of Dr. Brettler's work, we'll post a link on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, and you can check out more of his stuff there. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy preaching and may blessings precede you.
need to give credit here to Blue Dot Sessions for some additional music this week during Mark's reading of Psalm 97. And we have a big favor to ask you. The first reading is still in its startup phase. And in the competitive world of free podcasts, we need your help to broaden our reach. If you'd take two or three minutes right now to forward a link to this episode or to our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, to your network of preaching and Bible-loving friends via email or your social apps, or go to iTunes and give us some stars and a brief positive review, those two things will help us exponentially grow our listenership and help make this podcast sustainable for the long run. Thanks for that, and have a great week.